you would please turn to the book of Genesis. Sometimes it is a good idea to take a small piece of scripture and spend a lot of time digging into that small piece of scripture. Sometimes it is a good idea to take large chunks of scripture and see the big picture, and that is what we're going to be doing today. Uh, We are going to cover Genesis, and I mean all of Genesis, in the next 40 minutes. And I've run over a little bit last two weeks, so I've got myself a little timer, so uh, I don't run over today. So in the next 40, 42 minutes or so, uh, we're going to cover Genesis, and uh, some of this will be, I'll be giving you summaries, and we'll be having some discussions based on those. Uh, We will also be doing a lot of reading, so uh, don't be surprised if I call on you to read, all right? I will, um, I won't call on Gladys, but everybody else should consider themselves warned. So, the book of Genesis. Uh, in this book, I was thinking about it and going, okay, you know, when you, when you think about what is a book trying to say, um, really, the book of Genesis has a, a lot of very important material in it. There might be some things in there we can go, okay, this is less important, than other things. But there's actually a ton of foundational material in this particular book. And it is a long book, uh, but there's lots of readings. There's lots more readings that we could do today, but since we are limited in time, uh, I will keep these mostly under control. And uh, there will be more readings at the beginning than towards the end. Um, But let's just go ahead and jump in. If we would, let's start with Genesis chapter 1. And uh, Leah, will you please please read 1 through 9? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters, and were under the firmament from the waters, which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Thank you. That is not all of the first creation accounts. You probably know that there's actually two. Uh, they speak of, both speak of creation, they just speak of it a little bit differently. One in chapter 1 and one in chapter 2. This is part of it. And you might recall our discussion last week where uh, the psalmist invoked this particular act of God bringing order to the world, of taking what was chaos and separating the land from the water and providing a place where humanity could actually flourish. Uh, This is a part of this particular account. Now let's look at Genesis chapter 2. And uh, I'm going to jump around some. Isaac, will you please read Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 24. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. 
I will make a helper of you. Now out of the ground, the Lord God has lost every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to him to see what he would call them. And whenever the man calls every living creature, that the man gave names to all livestock, the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall on him. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from him, he made for wood, and brought it to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called woman, because he has taken out of man. Go read 24. Yeah, go ahead and read 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife will both make in chapter 1, in a part we didn't read, man is created. Men and women are both created. Uh, but chapter 2 has a much larger bit of material on this creation and why you ultimately need both. Everything is good here in the garden, actually. At this point, everything is totally fine. And we do get a commandment that we did read there, and that is not to read from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which takes us to Genesis chapter 3. So, uh, Chip, if you would please read Genesis 3, 1 through 7. But was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you will be like God good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, also desirable for gain of wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed speed leaks together and made coverings for themselves. Thank you. And so this is when it all starts going wrong. All right, the serpent comes to them. The serpent tempts the woman. The woman falls. She brings Adam and says, hey, do it as well. He also sins. And thus you get man corrupted. After this, you have a curse against the woman, against the man, and against the servant, and against the earth. And it ends in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Uh, Catherine Hale, will you please read that? 22 through 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. And so you've got this image. Were, were Adam and Eve supposed to always stay in the garden and never leave? I actually think that's not the case. Right, Because God says to them, hey, uh, multiply and subdue the earth. Right, The Garden of Eden was not all of the earth. It was just a part of the earth. So when I think of this, I think, you know what? Actually, what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to have children, and they were supposed to fan out and subdue the earth. Right, They were supposed to cultivate it. Sort of like how God saw all of that was there and brought the chaos to order. I think the idea is Adam and Eve were supposed to have children, and they were supposed to fan out. And they were supposed to bring the earth into order. 
not that the earth was sinful or corrupted in the original, in the, in the beginning, but that it was just uncultivated and they needed to go out. But they sinned, all right? And so now not only are they able to go out, they can't come back in because they need to be barred from the tree of life because God no longer wants them to live forever. And so now Adam and Eve are forced out of the garden and now must cultivate the land and try to subdue the land, but without, well, without the righteousness they had before and without access to the garden. In chapter 4, and we won't read anything from chapter 4, you've got sin bearing fruit, all right, to go with the agricultural metaphor. You've got sin bearing fruit, and you've got Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel both are sacrificing to God. And God was more pleased with Abel, and then Cain killed him. But that is not your only murder in this chapter. You actually get a second one towards the end. You have a man named Lamech, if you just look in verse um, 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And so you've got violence brought to the earth when there should be no violence. And you're going to see a lot of violence, um, especially throughout the Old Testament narrative. And all of this is because of that sin. If you look in chapter 5, the main purpose of chapter 5 is to provide a genealogy. As you know from your reading from the Old Testament, you'll find lots of genealogies. The main point here is the narrative needs to go all the way from Adam, ultimately, to Noah. If you look at the last verse, you will see Noah, and that sets up the next story. Yes, Chip? created men in his own image in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he created Adam and Eve. Yes. So they were a special creation, and, and until they sinned, it sounds like they were immortal. I, I agree, but I tend to look at it as they were immortal because they had access to the tree of life. But yes, they were, they were meant to be immortal. And you get that image also when you go to the end of Gen- uh, to the end of Revelation, where this is ultimately all restored in the end. And it also explains the presence of other people after they were good, after Adam and Eve were cast out. In what way? In what way? Um, what do you mean? Later, later on uh, in, the, in the flood. Uh, so another special creation of people is what you're saying exactly. yeah uh, it's it's not clear it's, it's actually one of those great mysteries of the genesis of the genesis narrative very interesting um, but you definitely do have at that point Cain going off and he's founding cities as well exactly. right he, and so he took a wife. Yeah, there's, there's a whole lot there that's unfortunately not mentioned. It's, it's one of the interesting interpretive challenges for Genesis, yeah. Similar also when Cain says, when they find me, they're going to kill me. Who's the they? Yeah, yeah. There's clearly some unspoken narrative there, yeah. Time is also a problem. In what sense? Well, it, it doesn't really pay out the length of time. Between the time Adam and Eve were cast out and the blood. That's true. Yeah. Um, 
expanse of time in the, the creation narrative. You know, it, God it says it's you know, it delineates days, nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's he's speaking to someone that doesn't has no concept of time. Moses, really. You know, in terms in terms of millennia. That's true. There would not have been, yeah. If you if, if you look throughout the Bible, there is no only when they mention long lengths of time, they mentioned it in terms of thousands of years. They had no idea what a million or a million were. Yeah, there's. Yep, I, I agree with that. Uh, when you get to chapter 6, you get the story of Noah. And the story of Noah goes all the way essentially to um, into chapter 10, if you include his direct descendants. Uh, let's read a little bit of this. Um, Anthony, will you read chapter 6, verses 1 through 8? When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years, the Nephilim were on the earth, both in those days and afterwards, when the Son of God came to the daughters of mankind, who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his sight. Then the Lord said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth mankind, whom I created, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. Uh, Let's continue. Uh, Catherine, will you please read verses 9 through 14? This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And so we've got the need for a flood. Wickedness has grown, right? You've got... The, uh, son, the sons of God come to live with the, the daughters of men. Two major interpretations. These are perhaps sons of Seth, or these are kings, or these are angelic beings. I hold to the angelic being story. I know some of you hold to the human being story. Regardless, the result of this is great sin in the land. Uh, and So what happens? God says, I'm going to just wipe them all out. And so he goes to Noah and tells Noah to build an ark. And so Noah builds the ark. There is a flood, all right? God kills everyone, all right? And then when we get to chapter 9, if you would, all right? And so, of course, there's a lot of details in there, and I would always encourage you to go read them. Um, You get to chapter 9, and about halfway through chapter 9, we get to where now the flood is over, all right? And we're going to have to talk about, okay, now there's Noah... And there's Noah's children that he brought into the ark and their wives and so forth. And so uh, let's, let's go ahead and look at this. Um, you've got Noah's uh, descendants here. You've got Shem, Ham, and then you have Japheth. If we look and we look at, for example, verses um, 
24. Then Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. He had sinned. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Wow, why did he curse Canaan? We've got Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, as it turns out, Canaan is the son of Ham. And of course, Canaan, all right, this is one of those prefigurings. This is one of those things you should expect to see in the future. Canaan is what the land of Canaan, all right, is ultimately going to be called by and what's going to happen. They are ultimately going to be sometimes killed, sometimes subjugated by the Israelites when they go into the land many hundreds of years into the future. So you have Genesis here in Genesis chapter 9, prefiguring, all right? Prefiguring, you see what's coming um, here in the narrative. So whenever you look back in the narrative, when you go to Joshua or Judges, you can look back to Genesis and go, yep, this was all prefigured a long time ago. Chapter 10, you have now the narrative continuing of descendants from Noah, all right? Descendants from Noah, what happens? Well, you've got them, you know, they're having children, they're having children, and so forth and so on. And part of this is to once again talk about the Canaanites. Uh, somebody, uh, let's see, I'm going to say, Rhonda, will you please read Genesis 10, 15 through 20? Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heb and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Gergeshites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arbidites, and the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites expanded from Sidon in the direction of the great, of, the, of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, and Adna, and Zeboam, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by the clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. How far do you agree? That's good, right there. And so you get actually a number of, of uh, people names that you will see later on. You also see cities that we will see uh, later on, uh, like for example, Gerar. In Gaza will come up later in the in the narrative here in Genesis. So one thing that's interesting here is uh, you've got the people spreading out. All right, why are they spreading out? Why do they have multiple languages? It's actually the chapter after this where that gets explained, and so then you get chapter eleven. Uh, and so Edward, would you please read chapter eleven verses one through nine? And the whole earth was in one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed to the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And Jehovah came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And Jehovah said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. 
So Jehovah scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the earth, and they left off to build a city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because Jehovah did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did Jehovah scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Thank you. And so this explains why the scattering happened, and not only the scattering, but why the proliferation of languages. Yes, Chip? Isn't there a contradiction here? Verse 20 of chapter 10, said they had uh, clans and languages in their territories, and they just seem to think they had different languages. And then verse 1 of chapter 11, they said they all had one language. Well, I think it's just they they basically dealt with the the narrative of the descendants first and then explained it in the next chapter, right? Because you're going to ask, okay? So, you've only got Noah, you've only got Noah and his children that come out of the ark, all right? How many languages are they going to speak? All right. Well, I mean, one one language, all right? You don't really need to explain that. That's just kind of going to be the way it's going to be, all right? Just one language. Uh, and, though, and so what he wants to do at this point, all right, is he's trying to set up, all right, what's going to happen, big picture, in terms of where the people are ultimately going to go, all right? And so he does that, and he explains not only the Canaanites, but a group of others, all right? But why languages? Why multiple languages? All right, so then he follows it up with the story of battle. Now, why did the author not put the story of Babel between that last part about Noah's descendants and that particular narrative? I don't honestly know. Uh, It's kind of a flashback, right? Because it's, I mean, you have to be a really dumb writer, all right? If you're at the beginning of chapter 11 and say the world had one language and you just wrote like three paragraphs before, they had multiple languages. Either he's a really bad writer all right, or it's meant to be seen as a flashback and a description of why all that pro- proliferation happened. Because right? naturally you're going to, I mean, if the world's wild and crazy out there and totally untamed, it's actually extremely dangerous to go and spread out. All right? It's extremely dangerous to do that. Why would they do that? All right? And as you see, they don't, because of the Tower of Babel story, they don't want to do that. But that is exactly what God wants them to do, because God wants them to subjugate the land. And so, yeah, I think it's ultimately a flashback to give you the reason for why. They ultimately need, what was the thing that spurred them into proliferating all over the land instead of just staying in essentially Mesopotamia, which is where Shinar would be. So I don't think it's a contradiction. I just think it's a shifting of the order. Yeah. At the end of chapter 11... You've got Shem's descendants. And why do we care about Shem's descendants? We care about Shem's descendants because Abram is one of Shem's descendants. And what you've got here at the end of chapter 11 is setting up the Abrahamic narrative. And Abraham is ultimately going to be the primary character, all right, until we get to 25, 24, all right? And so while we're here, let's read something from Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1 through 3. Abby, will you please read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curse you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Thank you. Now, uh, let's look at this. Now, one problem I have is I don't have a blue marker. And so purple on here is actually supposed to be water. All right, so just imagine that uh, you have mild color blindness, and this is blue. All right. And so you've got Egypt, Sinai Peninsula, Arabia, lots of desert, not enough water, don't go there. Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, a.k.a. Sea of Tiberias, whatever you want to call it. Uh, then you have over here, all right, so you have lots of desert over here. But here you have two rivers, which are the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. And this is where you have Mesopotamia, which basically means in the, between two rivers, specifically between these two. This is a very fertile area. Okay, So where are they? Well, Shinar, people were going to put that here. Where's Abram? All right, Abram is also over here in the land of Chaldea, all right, in Mesopotamia, and Ur. And so what does Abram do? Abram actually travels this way up to Haran. Now, something you don't really have in the narrative, but is true, because you can look on a map and you'll find it, is there's mountains all the way through here. All right, so mountains, 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 okay? And so he's basically following this and then going down. Now, also, you will find throughout here, there's lots of mountains here as well, where this is a nice, flat coastland, at least part of the time. There are also some mountains here. It's very rugged terrain. So what Abram does is he goes up to... Haran. And God tells Abram, I want you to go to Canaan. So he goes up and then he goes south. And this is a very common pattern throughout all of biblical history. And the reason why, if you're down here and you go here and you go south, is because that's desert. And trying to cross the desert and then trying to cross mountains is not very intelligent. So typically people did not do that. They went up northwest and they went um, south, if you, if you wanted to get to, if you're in Babylon and you want to get to Egypt, taking the crow's flight path is a really terrible way to go. So you go up and you go down, which is why there's always wars right there. Because everybody up here wants Egypt and Egypt wants to keep them and so they're away. So they're always fighting right there. And that's, I don't know, 75% of the wars that you'll find in the Bible is right there because of that particular reason. They all want to go up and down that coast. So in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and I want you ultimately to go to Canaan. So he goes up, and then he goes south. So they go there, and um, when, you, when you get to, to, a, to Canaan, all right, there's a famine in the land. Abram actually goes down to Egypt for a bit. And then in chapter 13, Abram and Lot, Lot is a relative of his, uh, they come back up to Canaan, and then they separate. Do you all remember where, where Lot goes to? Anybody recall? Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. The, he goes down in this particular area down here where Abram stays up here in, in Canaan. Now, in chapter 14, we've got some very important stuff there. We won't read here. Uh, but very important stuff here. So um, some kings come down. If you read the narrative, it's kings from up here. All right? They come down this direction, and they make war. All right? And Lot and his family get captured. And so in chapter 14, you've got Abram getting his people together all right, and going and fighting a war against these kings. 
Now, when we think kings here, don't think kings in charge of hundreds of thousands of troops. Abraham just takes a few hundred. These are probably small kings, populations, not that huge at this point. And so you've ultimately got they're kings, but they're not huge kings and huge kingdoms. But you've got to fight. Abram goes to war against them and brings Lot back. This is where, when Abram comes back, and he comes here, all right, near Jerusalem, he is met by a mysterious figure, a mysterious figure called Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And this Melchizedek comes to Abram, all right, and blesses him. All right, comes to Abram and blesses him. And then we don't see much more. We'll see him in the Psalms, but then he plays a big part in the book of Hebrews when they talk about Melchizedek is actually an image of Christ. Okay, so that is all happening here in this chapter 14. Very important ultimately for the author of Hebrews' understanding of what's going on in all of history. Chapter 15, you have God coming to Abram and giving the covenant again. So if you would turn to Genesis chapter 15. Jeannie, if you would, please read uh, verses 1 through 6 for me. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Uh, John Payne, will you please read verses 12 through 16. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land. And shall serve them, and they shall live in them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out of the great substance, their great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good Next verse. Thank you. You get prophecy here of what's going to happen in the semi-near future, right? Not immediate future, but semi-near future several hundred years away. First of all, this is talking about how the people are going to go into Egypt and spend 400 years there, right? And part of this, all right, part of this is to wait because God intends to judge the Amorites, but not yet. He's giving them more time to repent. They end up not repenting. And so whenever the Israelites come out of Egypt much later, God then brings upon them his judgment. And that's the purpose of that, that last bit right there. 
they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God renews his covenant with Abram. In verse 16, Sarai right, has a good idea and says, well, if I'm supposed to have a son, uh, well, I can't because I'm old. So she gives Abram, um, she gives Abram her, her servant and says, have a child with the servant. And the child Hagar, oh, excuse me, the servant Hagar does have a child. And his name is Ishmael. Uh, this is not Sarah thinking necessarily particularly correctly because after it happens, she then gets jealous. And there from really is strife between Sarah and Hagar uh, for, for the rest of, of the narrative. In chapter 17, um, God commands circumcision. And a lot of this, this sequence is very important to Paul later. Remember that God declared Abram righteous because of faith before he gives the, com- the covenant of circumcision, which happens in chapter 17. Declared righteous in chapter 12, given circumcision here in chapter 17, which we won't read because of time. In chapter 18, if you would turn there, I will read the first two verses. And Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. This is remarkable because this is a time when God physically appears to Abram. This is very clearly a physical appearance because you actually have at the end of this, all right, what, what, is, God, what is God here for? All right, what is Yahweh, and he uses his covenant name here, what is Yahweh here for? He's come with two angels, all right, and he is going to go check out Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, and so you've got here Abraham talking to Yahweh, all right, which we often will take as, a, as actually Christ, a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ to Abram. Here he is talking to God as if he is a man. And God sends the angels down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham starts talking to God and says, hey, okay, you're looking to see if there's sinners down there. Uh, if there's X number of righteous people, Will you save Sodom? And God says, yes. Then he says, but if there's X smaller number, will you still save? And God says, yes. All right, and ultimately it gets down to a small number. Well, the angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, that is in chapter 19. All right, and it turns out the city is exceedingly sinful. All right, and so what the angels do is, you know, and actually to fulfill what they had just discussed between God and, and Abram, all right? The angels take the only righteous man out of that city, all right? And so they take Lot out of the city, and God then destroys it. After this, you've got Lot and his daughters. The daughters see no men that they can, um, that they can have children with, so they have children with their father, And that's where you get the Moabites and the Ammonites. And if you know later history, that becomes a problem. First, what's what's up? Just commenting on that, huh? Uh, So chapter 20, moving much faster right now. We have a run-in with Abimelech, but then ultimately Isaac is born from Sarah. In chapter 2, you get the almost sacrifice of Isaac, where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his one special son. Abraham agrees to do it. But God stops him before it happens, and God is ultimately testing his faith. Sarah dies in 23, and in 24, Abraham wants a wife for Isaac. 
obviously. He needs descendants. And he probably likes Isaac and wants him to get married anyway, I assume, but he needs descendants. And so Abram, instead of getting a wife amongst the Canaanites where he's at, he sends, all right, he sends essentially for a wife from up here, all right? Isaac himself does not go. But a servant goes and finds a woman for him, Rebecca, and brings her back down, all right? And these are ultimately um, Abraham's relatives. And so I believe she is, if I recall correctly, she is the daughter of the nephew of Abram. Y'all can check me on that. But if I recall correctly, that is what it is. In chapter 25, um, in chapter 25, Abram marries again, has more children, but ultimately sends them away. There's discussions of Ishmael, and you get the birth of Jacob and Esau. This is where um, the Esau-Jacob narrative begins. And so you've got there at the end there, Genesis 25, 19 through 28, you've got Esau, uh, Jacob being born, and then Esau giving away his birthright. In chapter 26, uh, let's do go ahead and read this, if we would. Genesis 26, verses 1 through 5. Uh, Jennifer... I don't believe I've asked you to read yet. If you would, please do so. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Isaac went to Gerar to be Malek, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Thank you. God had made the promise to Abraham, but then God comes to Isaac, who is in Gerar, by the way. Gerar was mentioned back in the, the, the spread to the Canaanites that we were reading earlier about um, going to Gaza and out to Gerar. This is ultimately, well, this is where Isaac goes to. And so he goes to Isaac and confirms this covenant with him as well. All right. We will find that he will confirm this covenant later, all right, to Jacob. But not yet. We're still where Isaac is the most important person in the narrative. One thing that's interesting about the Genesis narrative, if you think about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, all right, and Jacob, Isaac gets way less, have you ever noticed that? He gets way less text than any of the others. Poor Isaac. So while we're here in Genesis chapter 26, let's also go towards the end. Genesis chapter 26, verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Why is this an important part of the story? I'm not going to tell you. Perhaps next Lord's Day. Because it actually does set up the following narrative. So, uh, Lord willing... Um, Next Lord's Day, we'll continue on through Genesis. If you want to read ahead, please do so. 
uh, if you want to review what we went through, also please do so if you want to do both. I heartily recommend it. Um, you know, we, we do spend different, you know, in our Bible study, we do different things sometimes. Like I said earlier, sometimes we spend a little bit of time in an area. Uh, I've just recently been reading large chunks, all right, large chunks of the Old Testament. It is valuable to do that, all right? It is valuable to not just look at the details, but also let's see the big picture and take it all in. And so I would totally encourage you to do that. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm in Judges, um, so Genesis is in my rearview mirror. But I totally encourage you to do it. Go read all of Genesis if you have time this week. It will bless you. That is it for today because we must be dismissed. I wish we had more Bible time. But now, let's go next door and let's pray. And let's sing and let's worship together and listen to the scriptures. Shall we? Uh, Frank. Will you please close us in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to look uh, into your word, to see the big picture, and to understand all the individuals that you put in, your, put in the study of Genesis to, for us to look at and ponder on we ask God that you would help us to understand everything and do our best to take it into our heart, ponder it. And we ask now that as we go to service, you would enlighten us with your word, that you would bless us with it. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who this is all about. And we look forward to the blessings you bring us in worship. We pray it in Jesus' name. Thank mm-hmm. you.